Amen. Good morning to you. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians is attempting to clear up a big misunderstanding that goes all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul is attempting to help the Corinthian church understand why it is that he never made it out to Corinth as he had intended. One of the reasons that he didn't come out, he explained, we saw in the text last time at the very end of chapter 1, came right out and very frankly said it was to spare you, to spare the church, a standoff, a showdown that might have taken place because Paul had really felt like going there and giving him a piece of his mind. The second reason, though, that he didn't go to Corinth at the time he was going to go to Corinth, I mean, all of the reason is because God had planned something else for him, really. But the second reason we saw in our last two verses in chapter 2 last time, verses 12 and 13, where he writes, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. So Paul had an open door to do ministry in Troas. Now, Paul doesn't walk away from an open door to do ministry ever, except that he had not found Titus, his brother. Titus was the one who would have delivered the letter to the Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so Paul, no rest in his spirit, because he was waiting to get with Titus to find out how the Corinthians had received that letter, that first letter, since it was a corrective letter. It was kind of a challenging and harsh kind of letter. So no way, Paul's saying, I'm going to go to Corinth until I find out whether they still love me or they want to stone me after writing that letter. And so he's waiting. He had to go to Macedonia to finally get the word from Titus. Yeah, they're, they're okay. They've received this now, and they're putting it into practice. Now, it's incredible to me, though, that all of this began, like I said, with one big misunderstanding, all because the Apostle Paul didn't go to Corinth when he said he was going to go to Corinth, even though he told them that, well, he qualified his plans by saying, if the Lord permits. Now, somehow they missed that, or they misunderstood that, or you can read it yourself. It's a paragraph, and he says that if the Lord permits at the very end. And so maybe you can kind of understand that they thought he was talking about something else instead of qualifying the whole paragraph. Either way, it was a misunderstanding, and a misunderstanding that has caused this friction between this entire church body and the Apostle Paul. That friction has caused many of them within the church to begin to doubt Paul. This is travel plans we're talking about that is causing this problem. And eventually it's going to explode into a full-blown doubt of his integrity and his authority. And a little bit off the subject, but very relevant for any church body. So important for all of us as a family. It's amazing to me how little misunderstandings between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ can cause major animosities and 
hostilities. It really is. It starts out small, but because we don't communicate sometimes when we know we should, it gets harbored, it gets nurtured, it turns into a grudge or a root of bitterness, even as I've seen, and there are people probably all over this county that um, are upset with me, and I don't even know why, because they didn't even come tell me, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about it so they could understand maybe why I made the decision that I made or why you made the decision that you made that made them upset with you or whatever the case may be. And oftentimes, sadly, it even becomes an excuse to undermine or dismiss an entire uh, church, their doctrine, their method of ministry, the people in that church body, or even whether or not those people attend church at all. Well, they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. And now I see things a little bit differently. And that's what happens because it starts off as just this little hurt feelings and it turns into something more when we don't communicate. And that's where Paul's at right now. His integrity confronted, his teaching called into question. And even as we'll see this morning, his authority as an apostle is being challenged. And I think in our passage this morning, it's interesting to me the way that the apostle Paul responds to this challenge specifically of his apostleship. He could have responded by saying, hey, uh, have you heard about the miracles that God has done through me? Do you know my testimony, how I've seen the risen Christ? How about any of you? Yeah, I didn't think so. But he doesn't say anything like that. He could have said, and he says something similar to it in our text this morning, do you need to see my resume? Do you want to see my resume? Is that really what you want? Which, by the way, you know, like any profession, a pastor, when they change venues, uh, they got to put together a resume. It's just as important for a pastor to put together a very carefully thought out, well-constructed resume as it is for any of you when you change jobs. Now, recently, I came across a list of statements that pastors are better off leaving out of their resume. Okay, you ready? <laughs> In the five churches I've faithfully served over the last two years, <laughs> I've learned to cope with financial crisis at every church I've served. Okay, pay attention to this one. My extensive counseling of church members has provided a rich source of sermon illustrations. And this one, you got to be clever here. My personality has provided me ample opportunity to develop conflict resolution skills. <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about this morning, but I just thought it was kind of funny. I'm not dismissing Paul's resume. I'm not dismissing the miracles God did through him. I'm certainly not dismissing his testimony of having seen the risen Christ, because that is what qualified him to be an apostle. But Paul doesn't do anything. He doesn't resort to that. He doesn't use those things as his justification. Instead, he appeals to something completely different. He appeals to the fruit of his ministry, and namely, the changed lives in Corinth itself, which, by the way, he could never do if it were not 
for the reality and the truth and the validity of the Holy Spirit inside of us. No one can say, hey, here's my evidence of my apostleship, as Paul said. You all, the fruit in your lives. He could not say that except that he knew and had confidence in how real the Holy Spirit is, that the Holy Spirit would testify to that truth. They could not deny that. Whereas you know, any other kind of way of changing your life, reading books or going to seminars or whatever, you could deny that the change in your life came as a result of that. But the Holy Spirit won't let you do that. If you've been born again of the Spirit of God, you know that that's true. And Paul here demonstrates the confidence that he had, the confidence that he knows that any legit believer has in the reality of the Holy Spirit and his willingness and ability to work changed lives in all of us. And as believers, you know that we're called to live a different kind of life, a life that shines a life that stands out, a life that is not the same. Now, here's the thing. What we know also is that we're unable to do that in our flesh. You know, just, you know, trying a little harder, focusing a little more, putting a little more effort into it, doesn't get it done. It comes only as we walk in the Spirit. It's nothing that no mere man or woman can do on their own. Only God can truly change a life. And only God can make us, key word for this morning, quote, sufficient. Only God made the Apostle Paul sufficient for the calling of apostle and to plant these churches, to be a missionary, to preach the gospel. Only God could make the people in Corinth sufficient to be a light in a very dark town, a very dark city that Corinth was. And only God can be sufficient in my life and in yours to change us so that we also can be that testimony of what he's able to do in a human being's life. And the only way that God can continue to be as victorious in our lives as we would want him to be, as he would have us to be, is if we also do our part in the equation. And that is that, don't ever forget this, that God's sufficiency is oftentimes and can be limited by our intimacy or our lack of intimacy with God. So he's sufficient, but our intimacy is part of what plays a role in the equation. Two things, his sufficiency, our intimacy, two things we're going to look at this morning. Verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And isn't that the truth, that he's always triumphant in our lives? Doesn't always seem like it. Sometimes we're going through things at the time, and it's kind of difficult to see around the corner and how it's going to play out. But if we just obey the Lord and we stay the course and we keep seeking him and following him. He always leads us to triumph in Christ and through us, it says, diffuses, or that word might mean distributes or spreads the fragrance of his knowledge 
in every place. 4 verse 15, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Every single one of us as Christians, we have a fragrance, obviously. But we're not talking about a physical kind of fragrance here. We have that too. Uh, but he's talking about a spiritual fragrance. And that fragrance should be Christ-likeness. It's a scent. It's an aroma. And it only comes from spending time with the Lord. It's not something that you can just kind of splash onto your life like Old Spice or Aqua Velva or something like that. It's been said that deodorant doesn't take the place of a shower, and I agree with that. As we're washed by the water of the word, as we're cleansed by the confession of our sins, as we're refreshed by worship and fellowship and those things, we draw ourselves closer to God. He draws us closer to him, and then and only then are we able to give off that fragrance. It's true, it's been said, that you smell like what you've been around. So you go down to the beach and you have a big bonfire. That has a distinctive smell. You go to the Gilroy Garlic Festival. That has a distinctive smell. And spiritually speaking, you hang out in the world, you do worldly things, you develop a worldly appetite and a worldly set of plans for your day, and your scent, your aroma, will be worldly as well. On the flip side, you hang out with Christ, you hang out with people who love Christ, you serve Christ, you worship Christ, and then you have the aroma, the fragrance of Christ as well. And that fragrance, or I like to call it the essence, is something that is unmistakable to this world. In fact, sometimes, we come to church or we're worshiping or we've been doing our morning devotions and we go out into our day and that essence is more observable to the world around us than it is even to ourselves. You may remember from back in Mark chapter 14, just a few months ago, we were in a text where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were in their home there in Bethany. The disciples were there and Jesus was there. And Mary busted out a box of very expensive oil or perfume. And she took that perfume and she anointed Jesus' feet. And then after that, she wiped her hair upon his feet. And then that essence was left upon her head. And then John's gospel tells us that the house was filled with that fragrance, with that scent. And as you and I spend time in prayer and in devotion and worship, there's a fragrance that's strong enough to fill an entire house. It's a fragrance that's strong enough to attract those that are around us wherever we go. That when we leave home and we go out into the world, it's something that people actually pick up on. They notice it. Now, here's the sobering reality, though, about it. It's a fragrance, he says, both to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16, to the one, we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life, leading to life. You see, everybody in the world, believer or unbeliever alike, 
They sense the fragrance, but not everyone likes it. For some, the fragrance of the body of Christ is like body odor to them. It's a stench to them because it reminds them that they're perishing. It lets them know that they're headed in the wrong direction. It tells them what they already know instinctively. It's like in the movies when someone's about to die and they say something like, see you in hell kind of thing. Because they instinctively know when they're headed in the wrong direction. And when they come across a believer who's carrying the fragrance of Christ, they don't like that so much because it's a reminder of how they're living their life. To them, it's an appalling fragrance. But to others, the fragrance of Christ, those that are believers, it's a breath of fresh air. You ever run into a Christian like halfway around the world, like in Watsonville or Boulder Creek or something like that? You ever have a rough day? You just run into a believer, you know, at Safeway or Home Depot or something like that? Such a blessing. One of those Christians, and you know some of those Christians, some in this room that just are always carrying that fragrance. They're just a, a well of refreshment when you run into them. I love that. It's wonderful. Sometimes you can run into someone you don't even know them. You're just like at the airport or you're at Costco or something, but you're just like, I just know that's a believer right there. I just know because they have that fragrance of Christ. You ever been in a restaurant before and you see a family take the time to hold hands and bow and pray for their meal right there in the middle of the restaurant? Love that. It emboldens us. I love it too when the waiter's walking up right as they do that too. Because the waiter's got to stay and bow their head and say amen afterwards if they want to tip. Right? <laughs> it emboldens the rest of us. It's a wonderful thing. You and I, we see that. And for us, it's a blessing. It's a total blessing. So the question is, how do we do that? How are we like that? And he rhetorically asks as much here, then proceeds to veer for just a few verses on another subject, but he'll circle back in a little bit. He says, and who is, end of verse 16, sufficient for these things? Who can possibly walk around all the time emanating Christ? That's a very difficult thing. How can we emanate Christ? How can we ever emanate Christ? Who's qualified to carry the fragrance of Christ? He'll get back to that in a little bit. However, he says, at least... Verse 17, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. In other words, hey, at least we're not like some of those charlatans out there that are peddling the word of God. In other words, they're, they're just trying to make a buck off of you. Same thing today, right? There are Many, many that are just in it for the money. And they water down everything in order to do that. Paul says, no, but in sincerity, he said, they're in the sight of God in Christ. We spoke to you as if Jesus Christ was sitting right here in the congregation. Here's what I believe. I believe by faith 
that in every gospel teaching church in the world, Jesus Christ is sitting here with us right now. And it is incumbent upon us as believers to operate that way. It will change everything that you do if you're aware by faith of the presence of Jesus Christ, of the fact that we are in the sight of God in Christ and that he is with us. Paul says that's the kind of sincerity. He, we're not in it for the money. He was certainly not in it for the popularity. Obviously, that wasn't the case. If he was a swindler, if he was an imposter, if he was one peddling the word of God, why would he even be taking the time here to try to clear this matter up? Why would he even care to hear from them and make sure they're not upset with him and explain why he didn't come in the first place? He just move on to the next town. That alone should have been, I think, evidence of his motives concerning them, evidence of his sincerity. In fact, we've seen him use that word already. This is more than once that he's used the word sincerity. We've been sincere the entire time among you. We're in it for you. We're in it for God. We have the right intentions. We're not perfect, but we love you. We care about you. We never meant to mislead you. We're not like those other guys out there, as some of you might think that we are. So chapter 3, verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves? So do you think that I'm now patting myself on the back, giving myself props or praise because I'm saying that we operated in sincerity? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you. Do I need a letter of recommendation? I need to give you my resume? The Apostle Paul, can you imagine? Paul, we'd like to see a resume from you. Just see what you've done in your past experience, you know, what you've been up to, that kind of thing. Just a few referrals, too, that we can call and just ask about your character and your conduct, your on-the-job training, that kind of thing. Because, well, he didn't walk with the Lord Jesus for three and a half years like the other apostles did maybe would have been the argument there. So maybe he was a self-appointed. How do we know for sure that he's a real apostle? Maybe we need a letter from like Peter or something like that. Validating. Or from God. That's even better. Dear church in Corinth, Paul's an apostle. Love God. They would probably like that. Is that what you want? Do you want a letter of recommendation from Paul the apostle? Now to be fair though, in those days... He had all kinds of speakers, all kinds of teachers, some that were legitimate and some that were illegitimate, and some that were just merely, as he said, peddling the word of God. Now today, we, we get people all the time that will call the <clears throat> church office, and they're a musician or a musical group or a drama show on the road or a speaker that wants to come and visit our church body and that's how they make their living and today we can just google them we can tell them to send us a cd we can go online find out you know what they're about what their mission statement is what it is they believe who they affiliate with you can see what conferences they've spoken at so you can see what kinds of people they affiliate with so we can check to see if 
uh, they're safe, if they're like-minded with us, if they're really gospel-oriented or not. Um, we can ask for a resume, or we can ask for a letter of recommendation. We can do all of those things. We can find out a little bit about them sometimes, how they live. Do they travel via bus, or are they going to fly here, or do they have their own private jet? We can find out a lot about them that back in the day, it was difficult to find out about, and so in order to know, to possibly know the difference between those that were peddling the word of God and those who were operating out of sincerity, as Paul says, many churches required letters of condemnation. Now, but it's one thing to ask for a letter of commendation from someone that you don't know, from someone whose ministry you can't validate. That's one thing. But to ask Paul for one? Now you think about the sacrifices that Paul made in birthing that church there in Corinth. Now, let's just say you're there. You sit there and you've been delivered from idol worship and paganism that went on in that temple there in town, which was the big, big deal there in Corinth. And you have been because the Apostle Paul was faithful to respond to God's call upon his life, and you were delivered as a result of the Apostle Paul's ministry, and now you're going to ask him for a letter of recommendation? And that's why Paul's saying this. Do I need like a letter of recommendation? And here is his wonderful, beautiful answer to that. Verse 2. You are our epistle, our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. So what is read by all men? You, he said, meaning Corinth, but I would say you all are known and read by everyone. The old saying is true, you've heard it before, but you'll hear it again this morning. The only Bible that some people will ever read is you. And that's why it is so very important that we take into consideration that we are an epistle, that a, a changed life is not just the evidence of the Apostle Paul's calling, though it is. More importantly, it's the evidence of Christ's calling. He says, verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, he says, but nevertheless an epistle of Christ. Here's the thing. You call into question Paul's ministry and you became born again at a church that Paul was ministering at, you're now calling into question Christ's very ministry in you. That's very important for all of you and here's why. Now I don't want to keep bringing up the subject, but remember the last couple of weeks we've talked about forgiveness. We've talked about letting things go, past hurts and things like that. Listen, if you have been to other churches in the past and there was fruit there and then something happened that caused you to leave, you now can't go back. You should not now go back and call into question the ministry of that church or the people that are ministering at that church because that's now calling into question the very fruit that God bore in your life as a result of being there. That's calling into question what Christ did while you were there. 
You're, you're not to do that. Even if somebody slipped up, even if someone failed in the ministry, if someone led you to Christ and then they fell, okay, you're still to praise God for the work that was done in your life, the fruit that God brought about in your life as a result of that. Paul says here that the Corinthian Christians were Paul's letter of recommendation, that he was called to do what he was actually doing. But he realized he didn't write the letter. He was just the pen in the hand of the Holy Spirit. They were an epistle of Christ, he says, written not with ink, so much better than being penned by ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And that's what we're to be, you and me. Living epistles, living letters to this world that God writes his word upon our hearts and then we go out and we live this life out as a result. That's the fragrance. That's where the fragrance comes from that we were talking about early on. We're talking about living a different kind of life. It's been said that the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that's made visible by the obedience of his people. When we walk in obedience to God's word, it's a letter, a living epistle from God to this world of how God can change somebody's life. That's the truth. And guess what? People actually read that letter, even though they may never in their life open up a Bible. They look at you and they say, why <laughs> do they go to church? Why don't they any longer come with us to the bar or whatever? Why do they do this or that? Why be honest in that situation when they didn't need to? Why do they smile when somebody hammered them or said something rude to them? Why do they take the high road in that instance? Why accept fault when it wasn't theirs? Why back down when they didn't need to? Why apologize when it wasn't their fault? A different kind of life is an aroma, is an essence that causes people around you to question where they're at with God. And it validates the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to them even if they don't understand it, they know it's something that they cannot identify. Now, I recognize that I even, from the pulpit here, go a little bit back and forth on this ever so often. That sometimes I'm up here <laughs> and I'm telling you that we need to say the words. We got to preach the gospel. We got to share Jesus with people. And then other times are like this morning where I'm saying that what we have to do is we got to live our lives. we got to live our lives as Christians. We've got to be that fragrance. That it's not always about what you say, but it's about how you live, living for Jesus, that's attractive to people so that they want to hear the words. Both are true. I'm not saying contradictory things. Both are true. At some point, the words have to come out. 
But to be attractive to where people want to hear the words, you have to live with that fragrance upon you. So it provokes them to want that in their life. And then they ask you, or it comes up in a conversation, the Holy Spirit leads you in that conversation. And now that's organic. That can actually happen. It's not you always hammering them home. It's just you living an attractive life, them seeing peace and joy that they don't have and saying, I want that in my life. I've been asked many times, as pastor of this church, what our marketing strategy is, what our plan of outreach is. And there are some things. I mean, we did that mall outreach where we made a worship CD and we handed it out at the mall. And we do some things on the web. We have a website and we do some search engine optimization and we do some things around Christmas time and Easter, just little things like that. But our primary outreach slash evangelism strategy in this church. Do you know what it is? It's you. It's you all. That's the strategy. And so far, so good. So far, it's working. It seems to work pretty well that healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. You think about it. You judge a store or a company based on the quality of its product, right? You judge a contractor based on the quality of their work or their craftsmanship. And so the world judges the church or even a church based on the kind of Christian that it produces. Okay, so we end with this. As I asked before, how do we do it? How do we emanate Christ? How do we walk around with that fragrance? How do we become Christians that live different kind of lives? How do we become an epistle of Christ read by all men? Well, as he said back in verse 16 of chapter 2, he said, and who is sufficient for these things? Who can do it? Now, I want to read the next two verses, verses 4 and 5, but we're not going to get into them this morning. But here's the answer. It says, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Now, you say, terrific, our sufficiency is from God. I don't have to do anything. I'm going to just sit back and God will make me sufficient for the task. Well, that is true and also not true at the same time. Because your sufficiency, as I said in the beginning, is going to be limited by your intimacy or your lack of intimacy with God. Sufficiency comes with intimacy with God. Intimacy with God is what can take you from where maybe today you're in despair to where tomorrow there's hope again in your life. Intimacy with God is what can fix your marriage. Where today it's a harsh word, tomorrow it's a soft answer as a result of intimacy with God. Intimacy with God protects me from my pride, the danger of my pride, and it keeps me humble. The Bible says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Intimacy with God can help me stay humble. 
Intimacy with God is the only way to avoid sin. When people come to me and they say, I'm having this sin struggle, what do I do? I, go, I have nothing for you. I have no, I don't know. The only thing I know is walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's it. That's the only strategy that there is. Intimacy with God is the only answer to sin that I know. Intimacy with God is what qualifies someone for the ministry. Not a piece of paper. Not past experience even. But intimacy with God. It's why God would call someone into the ministry. is because they have that intimacy with God. And finally, intimacy with God also prepares us for divine appointments, which I'm convinced are there all the time. But there's two problems that we have. One, because we're not intimate with God, we miss them. They go right over our head. Or two, we're not emanating the fragrance of Christ. And so what would have been a divine appointment is not because I'm not attractive on that day to that person for Jesus Christ. So I close with this question, what's our problem? Why are we so dead set on doing things our way and not more willing to be more intimate with God? Who has ever spent some time with the Lord and afterwards went, well, I wish I'd watched a movie instead? <laughs> Nobody. Or I wish I'd watched the ball game or I wish I'd gone to the park or fill in the blank. There's nobody in this room that could possibly make the claim that they're as intimate with God as they should be. No one can make that claim. We can all grow in this area. And as we do, we'll find ourselves more sufficient for the tasks at hand. And as we do, we'll see healthy sheep begetting healthy sheep in our lives. And God will be glorified and magnified in that kind of a different life. Pray for that this morning. Father, we do pray that you... You are our sufficiency. We know that. But we also know that um, sometimes, Lord, we get in the way just by not being willing to talk with you and hang out with you. Lord, how we can get so distracted by even ministry that intimacy is lacking in our lives. We can get distracted by what we think are completely legitimate excuses because we work hard and we're married or we have kids or we have responsibilities and things around the house and all these things that we have to do. And all of it, they are things that we have to do. And yet, Lord, we, we know we need you. We, we can't even do those things. Shouldn't even attempt to do those things. Shouldn't drive to work in the morning if we're not intimate with you. God, how we desperately need you in our lives and how we do want to emanate Christ. Lord, we want to be the essence of Christ. We sang earlier, oh, to be like you. It's amazing to me, God, this morning, just in observing this text, that it would seem we can be like you. We can be just like your son. It is within us to be an epistle of your son to carry the fragrance of Jesus Christ if we would but just seek you and walk with you it's simple it's so very simple help us to do it Lord this morning in 
Jesus' name.